0: right, well, whether we understand it or not, whether it makes perfect sense to us or not, there's something that Jesus asks all of us to do after we have said yes to him, and that is to be publicly water baptized. And uh, I know there are a lot of us in this room um, that haven't taken that step yet. I also know you have a really great excuse. I know you do. Um, I'm just going to encourage you to get over it. Whatever that is, I know, I know, I know your excuse is an awesome one, Um, but just push through it and uh, there's a reason he wants it to be public. Uh, There is spiritual power in baptism for you, but it's also for others and I promise you, you're baptized, there's going to be family, friends who come that wouldn't normally be here and uh, March uh, 11th, normally we just do baptisms on Saturday night, Um, we can fit them all in one. Uh, but we've already had so many people sign up that we're going to do it on Sunday as well. I have a prediction. This is probably going to be the largest baptism with the most amount of people that we've ever had. Um, again, we've, we had new people who've said yes to Christ and many of them, but I know there's a lot of us. I, just this past week, here's why I'm confident it's going to be the biggest one. Just this past week, Mark Richard, you know, is our board member. He's uh, speaks here quite regularly. Kenby uh, said, you know what, Brian? I just realized I have never been publicly water baptized. He's like, I'm in. I'm like, if Mark's in, we're out of excuses, right? Let's get in. So on the back of your connection card, we've already asked you to check off 16 things. One more won't hurt. If you have yet to be water baptized, just check it off and, and jump jump in there with us on that day. Um, we'll be giving you some information about it, so it's more than just check. But once you check that off, put your name, contact information so we can get you some information about the event. But it's going to be an awesome weekend for us to see all these people baptized. Well, I'm going to start the message by just telling you an interesting uh, Bible story. I think, you know, I think every Bible story is interesting, but this one is really, it's kind of odd and interesting, but there's a prophet in the Old Testament named Hosea, and God gave him an interesting command. Prophets are—they're like pastors on steroids, you know. They're these men of God who are just really holy and awesome. Well, God told Hosea that he wanted to go and court and win over a certain woman to marry her, and her name was Gomer. Now, I grew up watching my favorite show. Still, is Andy Griffiths. So when I hear Gomer, I'm thinking Gomer Pyle, right? And uh, so, I mean, it's already odd if you're, you've got to marry Gomer, right? That's, that's already a little bit strange. Um, but the next thing that's, you know, a little odd about the story is Gomer, at this point in her life, happens to be employed as a prostitute. Kind of odd that God's telling his prophet to go do this. Well, the story gets more strange. Go, uh, he goes and wins her over. She says yes to, to marry him. And things go great for many, many years. They have a lot of happy years together. They're just the happy, they're the, the, the Cleavers, they're the happy family, all is well. It's just like Mayberry. I mean, they're just having this wonderful, happy family. They have three children together. One day, the kids come home, they're sitting on the couch watching Malcolm in the middle, hollering out for toaster strudels, and Gomer's not there I might add a couple of, I'm not sure all that was in the Bible, but this part is, uh, mom's not there. She's gone. And the kid's like, where's mom? Well, long story short, they've found out, it takes a while to find out, that mom has left the home and she's with another man. And after he gets tired of her, she goes back to her old profession as being a prostitute. It's all odd enough, but the strangest part of the story comes after all this, where God comes to Hosea again and tells him, Hosea, I want you to go back to her. I want you to win her over again. I want you to go back, completely, utterly forgive her, go back, bring her back, and have your happy family again. Well, by this time, she's pretty sick of that lifestyle, so it probably doesn't take him much to go and, and win her over and you know, bring her back again, and... The whole story, would you agree? A little bit odd. But maybe the strangest part is at the end of the story, God says, Hosea, the reason I'm asking you to do this, I want you to, I, I want you to be a living illustration of how I feel. How I feel towards my people, towards all of you. Because this, this is just, he's trying to help us understand his emotions. I mean, what were the emotions that Hosea had? What are the emotions that any spouse has, when they find that their spouse is with somebody else, they they have a variety of emotions. And in the book of Hosea, these emotions are revealed in God. It starts with just absolute rage. As anybody who's been cheated on feels, there's just this rage that you feel like you can't control. And then there's another wave that comes at another time of just compassion and feeling understanding. You're like, oh, I get it. I get you know, where they were at and they understand. And these these waves of rage and then compassion and then, yeah, but you, and then understanding, they just come in, in various waves. And in the book of Hosea, these waves are appearing in God. God is speaking, revealing these various waves that are happening in him. And let me just read you one of them. Um, we could take a long time going through this book, but but one of them is God just revealing how The people are going to be destroyed under his wrath. And the wrath of God is something that we... Kind of uncomfortable to talk about, but it's a huge theme, you know, primarily in the Old Testament, but you certainly see it in the New as well. And God's revealing his wrath in this book of Hosea. He says, they will be destroyed. Talking about all the people. They're going to be destroyed because my people are determined... To desert me. So he's revealing this wrath in the very next verse. It's not like you have to flip a chapter. The very next verse, God says this, but my heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. So he's having a complete change of heart here. Now he says, my compassion is overflowing. God says, no. God says, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not mere mortal. See, if if you read this whole thing, God is saying that I've I've given this picture of Hosea so you can kind of relate, but at the end of the day, he's saying, you really can't understand me. You can kind of, we can kind of understand the emotions of somebody cheated, but God says it's, it's a lot bigger than that. It's a lot different than that. See, the truth is, in this and throughout the entire Bible, God reveals that he is holy. Will you say the word, everybody say Holy if you've been in church more than once in your life, we think we understand holiness. Holiness is when, you know, you have your cleanest moment, you have a good month. I mean, you haven't sworn in like a month, and, you you know, that's holy. Holy to us, and I'm going to endeavor to try to communicate it, but quite honestly, this message more than most, I feel utterly inadequate because holiness is something I don't understand any better than you do because here's the truth. Holiness does not exist within a human being. It doesn't. Holiness is something, it's something that God is, it's something that, that it's an attribute of him, and it's not something that he tries to put on. You see, holiness is something that we strive for, it's kind of a virtue. This isn't a virtue of God. It's kind of like saying that we have breath. Breath isn't something that you try to put on, right? You just woke up breathing, right? Breath is just part of you. Well, holiness is just part of him. And the holiness of God is something that is so freakishly powerful and all-consuming. Holiness consumes evil. It doesn't try to consume evil. It's not a conscious decision as to whether or not it's going to. That's just what holiness does. It's this all-consuming power that consumes evil. Can we see right now that God has a little problem on his hands? This is who he is. This is his very nature. A holiness that I nor you can comprehend is his nature that's his breath and holiness consumes evil what's the problem he loves us and we're naughty all of us see when we read the you know the story of hosea we we get it we're like yeah gomer yeah she she deserves the wrath yeah but the story and then the rest of the whole bible endeavors to help us understand that we're all Gomer. We are all, we all have at least that seed of darkness in us and it creates a problem for God. Well, this is all my introduction to what is the final uh, message in this series called AKA God, also known as God. We've been examining uh, a couple of the names by which God has revealed him. And today we're going to talk about the last one, And that last name is a name that's given, uh, Emmanuel. Uh, In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means, everybody say, God with us. us. One more time, say, God with us. us. Has it ever, ever crossed your mind why it was so challenging for the people that Jesus first came to? You know, when you read those Gospels, why in the heck did they have such a hard time with Jesus? I mean, you know, a lot of people didn't like him. I don't know if you know this, but they killed him. Yeah, yeah, they, they, the religious people didn't like him. Why? You know, when we read that, we're like, what a bunch of idiots. You know, why didn't they just, you know, why did they have such a hard time with him? Well, without having any more explanation than what I've done so far, can we understand why, okay, God is this passionate flame of holiness that consumes all evil, can we understand how, and and that's the God that they had learned about all of their lives, can we understand how from their perspective, God with us, God really close, eh, might not be a great idea, Uh, might be a little threatening, might be something they had a hard time getting a hold of. See, the first name, and again, my, my premise for this entire message is this. I'm actually going to spend more time on Yahweh, the name Yahweh, than I am Emmanuel because we've all heard about God with us our whole Christian lives. We've grown up knowing that and quite honestly, we don't appreciate it. We don't. I don't. We don't fully appreciate our forgiveness. We take communion. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I'm forgiven. I can be a mess and I get forgiven. It's all awesome. You never appreciate Emmanuel until you comprehend Yahweh. You see, Yahweh, Emmanuel is Yahweh. They are each other. Look at your, your notes there, and uh, if you will, pull out of your um, bulletin some sermon notes, and I put some scriptures on there. I just think it's going to help you to follow along, and while you're doing that, I want to say hi to our church up in Midcoast, Kim and Kevin and all the team up there mid Midcoast. We love you guys, and it's always great uh, to be with you, but at the very top there, you see the. That name that we 've been studying for three weeks, Yahweh, the reason by the way that it 's printed in only con- the reason i 'm putting it there is only the consonants is because that 's how it appears in your Hebrew Bible, and the reason that in the Old Testament they wrote it that way is because they never pronounced that name. We say Yahweh, and we think yeah, you know yahweh Jeho- Yahweh, Jehovah, however you pronounce it we, we don't, you know we, we argue about how to pronounce it. they never even pronounced it under the Old Testament to them. The, the revelation of God was so holy that they wouldn't say it out loud. And even when they wrote it, they just only wrote those consonants. They quite honestly didn't even know how it was pronounced, and we still don't. But under that, uh, under that name, I put the top scripture there. Um, by the way, even before you look at the scripture, everybody just keep looking back up here. And let me ask you a question. If you remember the series, remember the very first time that we talked about Yahweh, when that name was revealed to Moses? God revealed that name to Moses, Okay. If you remember, God was speaking to Moses. He appeared to Moses as a what? Well, he was in a bush, but he appeared to him as a what? A flame. He was speaking to Moses as a flame, a fire. Now, the fire was in a bush, and the bush wasn't consumed. But just think about it. If God was endeavoring to reveal to Moses that he's loving and sweet and kind, why didn't he appear to Moses as a grandma? Grandma in a rocking chair, just pulling Moses, come on over here, Mosey. come on, let's talk a little bit. Got some problems here, we're going to take care of it. Why, why, why a flame? Now, without looking at your notes, let me ask you this, does anybody know the, the very first words out of God's mouth? When God is speaking to Moses, he's revealing this first name, Yahweh, the first words out of God's mouth. Moses is approaching the fire, you know, it's, he doesn't even know it's God yet. He's approaching this. It's kind of awesome to him. He knows this is wild, and he's just walking closer. So the first words out of God's mouth when God's revealing his name to Moses are what? Don't come any closer. The first words out of God's mouth. Think about that. Don't come any closer. I mean, isn't the reason we come to church, isn't the ultimate whole purpose of the revelation of God is so that we can get closer? That's why we're here, right? We want to get closer, right? We, and we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get closer, But again, you'll never appreciate the closeness that we have. You can't appreciate it until you understand this aspect that God is holy and holiness consumes evil. He's telling Moses not to get any closer, not because he doesn't want Moses closer, but he doesn't want Moses to die. Look at the letter A under number one. This is one of, man, we could go through a hundred examples of stories like this. In the Old Testament, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire. They went in there. This is something that happened in that Holy of Holies, you know, where God's presence was really intense in there. They disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire, different than he had commanded. So fire, there's fire again. You see fire a lot when dealing with Yahweh. So fire blazed forth from before the Lord's presence and burned them up and they died there before the Lord. Isn't that kind of of stuff that you come to church to to learn? Isn't that? I mean, isn't that the kind of verse like, doesn't that just make you feel warm and fuzzy? Oh man, let's just sing some more songs, right? Let's be honest. These are the verses that most Christians are embarrassed of. We are. We're embarrassed of these. We try to hide them. And if you ever read them, we rush really quickly to explain them away. We rush really quickly to make sure that you understand that uh, Nadab, Nadab and Abihu were really, 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 really awful. Uh, they had committed like the world's bi- biggest sin and um, oh, it's just, it was just ugly and God just had to do it. We kind of miss the whole picture when you do that because quite honestly, you can read a lot of those stories. gang. Let's face the facts. Even Moses didn't make it into the promised land because of his sin. Even Moses, God said, you spoke to the rock and, I'm sorry, you struck the rock rather than spoke to it. You, you didn't represent me to Israel. You're not going in. I mean, gang, this isn't about the fact that only the terrible people were, were in danger with this fire It's all of us. And trying to make Nadab and Abihu sound so awful, we miss the point. The point is, is what the New Testament still reveals to us, that our God is a consuming fire. That's what Hebrew says. Our God is a consuming... Can we say that out loud? Say, our God is a consuming fire. That's a scripture that you just... New Testament scripture, not Old Testament. That's who he is. That's his nature. That's who he is. And... You know, if that's all you understand, you're like, okay, well, then how could we have a relationship with him, which is what makes Emmanuel so shocking, and which is why the people that Jesus first came to had a hard time, because let's be clear, throughout the entire Old Testament, both of these natures of God, both of these sides of God that God revealed to Hosea are revealed throughout the entire Old Testament. God's amazing compassion, his amazing love for his kids. His amazing desire to be with his kids and to love them and to know them and to walk with them is revealed throughout. I mean, I would say it's, it's dominant in the Old Testament. That nature is revealed more often than you see the wrath. But yet again and again, you see this other situation where the wrath of God consumes evil. For whatever reason, the people, at least the religious people of Jesus' day, kind of clung to that wrath side. I guess those scriptures were more amazing to them and and those are the ones they clung to. So here comes Jesus really explaining and, and teaching and revealing the amazing mercy and compassion and love of God and really going heavy on that side of the equation. But let's just examine a few of the stories that Jesus came telling us, all right? Because even today, I don't think we get it as well as we need to. And in really understanding what Jesus accomplished is going to totally bless your life. When, when we fi- finally get a revelation of what Jesus Christ has accomplished and through that amazing sacrifice, I get to walk with the consuming fire. He's still a consuming fire. He still is. And I get to walk with him. I get that presence with me. Until you understand what Jesus accomplished, it just kind of seems like Jesus just kind of handed you a teddy bear. You know, he gave you a gift. Yeah, Jesus gave me salvation. He handed me a teddy bear, and, and, it, and it's awesome. No, he didn't hand you a teddy bear. He enabled you to walk with the consuming fire. He, he enabled you. He, he opened a door for us to experience God. So just a couple of the stories. Just examine the stories that Jesus told. If you really examine pretty much every parable that Jesus told, um. They're kind of irrational. Every one of them are, have this kind of this wild math to them. Let me give you a, a couple of them, just a couple of the examples. Um, the first one being this servant. Uh, these are stories, if you've, if you've read the Gospels, you'll remember these stories. Jesus told the story of a servant who accrued a multi-million dollar debt. Uh, again, the stories are irrational. Let's be quite honest. Um, it would be challenging for any of us in this room to accrue a multi-million dollar debt because we couldn't get people to loan us that money. But a servant at that time, there's no possibility of him accruing a debt of that size. Nobody would loan him that. So the story's already irrational. But that's Jesus's point. He's wanting us to see that we still live in this, we still are under Yahweh and we still, have, we still do have this amazing gulf between us. This shocking, huge gap between us, and he, he still wants us to see that. So let's go on with the story. Jesus, this servant, has accrued a multi-million dollar debt. Uh, the master's having him and his wife, and f- which thousands of years ago, they did that. In order to, to pay the debt, they would sell the family, you know, into slavery, and his family's being sold into slavery to pay the debt, which would have never even paid the interest on the debt, by the way. But, you know, while he's being sold into slavery, the man just calls out for mercy. Forgive me, master. And the master just on the spot. Okay, all right. You're forgiven. Well, the whole story is irrational. Again, he couldn't have accrued a debt that size. And quite honestly, anybody who did find a way to accrue that kind of a debt, you'd kind of think of him as, well, he, he he wasn't a great guy. And if, as, you, as you follow the stories of long, along, have you ever realized that the heroes of Jesus' story, or maybe not the heroes, I'd say, but the people who end up getting the blessing in Jesus' stories were losers? Every time. How about the prodigal son? Probably the classic story that Jesus told of this son who went to his father and said, give me my inheritance, which the father was not required to do that. You know, that was something that after the father died. So half of the entire estate goes to the son, which again is irrational that a father would even do that, that that father would have had to have sold some property in order to give this to the son, but gives the son half the estate. Again, we're, we're assuming this is, this is a lot of money, massive of amounts of money. And the kid is still a teenager. He goes off to a foreign place and he's the life of the party for a few years. He's buying everybody's drinks. He's buying drugs. He's, the Bible says he's spending his money on prostitutes. He's living just the most ridiculous lifestyle. We all know what happens. He runs out of money, ends up hungry, ends up in a pig pen. And while he's in a pig pen, because that's the only place he can find food, the only place he can eat can you imagine that? He's in a pig pen now. And while he's in a pig pen, he realizes, oh, even the servants in my father's house back home have enough food to eat, so I'll go home. And, and he goes home, and the story is, that Jesus tells is the father who represents God the father is waiting, anticipating and, and longing for this son to come home. And when, when he sees the son afar off, it's been years, but when he, he's so anticipatory, when he sees the son from afar off, he, he, runs to, he runs to go get the son. But just stop right here again and back up and think through the mindset of the people that Jesus is talking to originally, who all they've known is Yahweh. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is holiness. That, that, I mean, even Nadab and Abihu, even Moses didn't make it into the promised land because of sin. And here we're supposed to assume that this ignorant kid goes and sells everything, and this father is supposed to represent God. You're supposed to be teaching us about God, and you're telling us that God longs for the most sinful one of us? Really? How about another story? All of his stories have irrational math. Jesus was not a great mathematician, apparently. How about this story? Jesus tells us a story of a a worker at harvest time, which in an agrarian society at harvest time, everybody gets out there and works. Everybody's been out in the field working all day long, and one guy comes out at only the last hour of the day. He's been on the couch playing video games all day long, binge watching something on Netflix maybe. He comes out for the last hour of the work day, Guys, you remember this story? You've read it in the Gospels? He comes out for the last hour, and then after that one hour, you know, he shows up and, and they pay their workers every day. Everybody gets paid at the end of the day. Don't you wish it was that way? End of the day, they all get paid, so they're lining up, and the master starts paying them with the people who worked only an hour first. And the guy who worked only an hour gets the same pay promised to everybody who's worked all day. He gets a full day's pay. Now, whether or not you'd say he's the hero of the story, once again, it's the slouch who ends up getting the big benefit. One other story. They're they're all this way. Another story that Jesus told. Jesus tells a story of two people that go in to pray. And one of them is a religious leader, and he prays like this. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not a sinner like other people, I don't cheat, I don't commit adultery, I, I tithe, I fast, I give God thank you. another he, he's just saying thank you to God that he's so holy you know and Jesus said another man was praying at the same time, just across the same room another man was praying being a tax collector who at that time was hated everybody hates the, hated the tax collectors but this tax collector the Bible says Jesus said that this tax collector Interesting note, I don't know if you ever noticed about the story, but he said the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, wouldn't even lift his eyes. And the tax collector prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, it's that guy who went home justified because he who humbles himself will be exalted and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. So obviously, once again, an irrational story, so obviously we're supposed to learn from Jesus' story That the first guy who was tithing and not sinning not committing adultery and not cheating, Jesus is obviously teaching us that those things don't matter to him, right? Is that that his point? That that he doesn't care about those things and we shouldn't tithe and we shouldn't, uh, we should cheat and we should commit adultery and is that what Jesus is teaching us? No. What is his main point? What is he trying to put way out there? He's trying to help us all see. The reason that the hero in all of his stories are what we would refer to as the loser is he's trying to get us all in the same boat. He's trying to get us all to see that we are that guy. All of us. We are that guy. That that is the math. That compared to Yahweh, that when you really get a full revelation of who God is, anybody who sees the real math of you and God, whoo. I can't climb that ladder. It it is shockingly far. I'm not even close. And story after story is Jesus trying to set this up to help us see that, gang, we are all so far from God. By the way, let me take a small, this really isn't a side journey, but you have to see this. You ever ask yourself the question, because we all know that Jesus was the solution to the problem. We're getting there. We're getting to Emmanuel in just a minute, right? So we know Jesus is the solution to the problem, Emmanuel came to solve this problem for God and to bridge that gap. You ever ask yourself a question, why didn't Jesus just come the next day? I mean, Jesus was coming to clean up our mess. I mean, after we human beings committed sin and created the mess, why didn't God just say, hey, guys, don't worry about that. I saw you made a little mess down there. Just chill out. I'll be down there tomorrow to clean it up. Relax. Why didn't he do that? I mean, that's, what, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus was coming to clean the mess that, that we created. Why not do it the next day? Why have thousands of years in between man's sin and Christ? Thousands of years. Well, the Bible tells us exactly why. Look at your notes under number three. Can we read verse three? A lot? Verse three. Number three. It's Romans chapter three, verse 19 on your notes. Number three. And this is where the Bible revealing the purpose of the law, the purpose of that time period between Original sin and Christ. The law, we call it the time of law. So let's read this aloud. The law, aloud, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. One more time, read that aloud. The law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. What is the entire purpose of this, of this period? To prove to every human being, he, 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 God knew human nature, he knew he needed to give us the ladder to try and climb it. He needed to prove to us it can't be done. You run out of air. No matter how great a climber you are, it's above the earth so high. You run out of air. You don't have it. It's not in you. The gulf is so much bigger than you could possibly comprehend that anybody who sees Yahweh as he is, the correct response to a revelation of God as he is and the holiness of God, the absolute correct response to that is your mouth is shut. Silence is the correct response. A revelation that I'm not even close. Mouth shut. First of all, in in humility, a mouth shut that just, you're done boasting. You're done talking about yourself. You're done talking about how good you are. You're just done. You, You see it as it is, and you just shut your mouth. Don't raise your hand, but let me ask you, have you ever had that moment? Hopefully that, and as you worship God, you'll have more than one of those moments I'd say that in my experience, the highest moments of worship are not the moments where I'm singing. The highest moments, there is a place beyond that where you can't even sing anymore. You're just, you just shut your mouth (laughs) because he's just bigger than you. So you shut your mouth, yes, and you you close it in just awareness of of your own sin, but also just in awe of God. You shut your mouth just in awe of God. Well, gang, this is what Jesus came to solve. And the reason for all of those stories, story after story, is he's confirming that he is Yahweh. And the gulf between us, the math, is unbelievable. It's insurmountable. And at the same time, Jesus is trying to help us see that once you see it as it is, once you see yourself as far from Yahweh as you are, once you see it, once you recognize yourself as the sinner, and once your prayer becomes the correct prayer... God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Once you see it and you're praying the correct prayer, bang, because Jesus is saying, I'm your only solution, I'm it. I've given you thousands of years to climb this ladder. It can't be done. You can't get to me, I came to you. That's what Jesus says, and you'll never appreciate your salvation until you get it, until you see that until you fully realize, I am a worm compared to, I can't climb it. I can't get to him. He came to me. He came to me, and I get to enjoy his amazing grace. I get to enjoy his presence here. I get to walk with the consuming fire, not because I'm so awesome, but because he paid that price, he consumed the wrath of God. That's what it means when, when we say Jesus died for me. For most people, that's just kind of a confusing statement. He, Jesus died for my sin. And that really doesn't quite honestly make really perfect sense. The math of that, we, we accept it, but it doesn't make sense. Gang, understand this. The majority of Jesus dying for you was, was headed towards God. It was, it was taking that wrath that God had, that, can, that we'll call it a condition, That condition that God had, that holiness that can't touch you, that can't touch evil, he was relieving God of that. All that wrath was able to pour out on Christ. This is a poor analogy, but it's the best I can come up with. If you've ever watched the movie X-Men, there's a character, Rogue, who can't touch people because just touching them, she takes the life, even people that she loves. It's a bad analogy because God isn't the one with the condition. We are. But in a, in a very real sense, that's what it means when Jesus died for our sin, that he took that wrath from God so that now God can. That's what it means. Now God can touch us. Now God can touch us. Now God can walk with us. He purchased that for God. Jesus primarily was dying for God, for God's benefit. And in fact, if you look at your notes there, the scripture um, under number three letter A, says this, for God was, is everybody following following along? Letter A. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He's talking about the cross. Do you see it right there? Without going any farther, do you see what that verse is saying? That this is God doing this for himself. He's not just doing it for you. now. we are the benefactors, no doubt, but God's saying, I'm doing this for me. I'm reconciling the world for me. I want you back. This is for me. That's what it means when he died for my sin. It's for God, so he can get back in. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Jesus took that, purchased that for us, for the, for the freedom now that God can walk with us and talk with us. This should, if we see this as it is, it should have an effect upon our life and i'm just really quickly want to read this under number 4 would you write this down we struggle in our faith walk we struggle to combine and write down these four words love love grace judgment and fear we struggle to combine those in the same cup but a honest genuine relationship with god today not just old testament today well, we'll you'll have all four of those in your own heart Mixed together, you you will recognize. And below that under letter A, hopefully if you're following through on these notes, I just wrote my own feelings. I, I don't know if my feelings are the, I'm not saying they're, they're not scripture, they're not the barometer of truth, but this is how I experience it and how my feelings. God is the only one who loves me completely. I'm just writing this out of my own feelings. God is the only one who loves me completely. That's how I feel. There is no close second. His presence is my greatest joy, yet at the same time, I fear him. I know he's a consuming fire. He is. He hasn't changed. At the same time, I fear him. Love and fear exist side by side with no contradiction. He is both my father and my judge at the same time. I want to know God as he is more than I want to be comfortable. This fear of God does not diminish love. It cleanses it so it can grow. And that's a real relationship with God. Yes, 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 we get to receive Jesus. But do we we understand this, that when we receive Jesus, it's like you swallowed a live coal. And, and And you get to swallow that, especially at the beginning, and we've all proven this, you get to swallow that while you're still a mass. How many have proven you get to receive Jesus while you're still a mass, right? But have you found out that that live coal kind of on occasion will just kind of heat up and it burns things out of your life. Just, it, but he's merciful, it's slow, it's gradual. There'll be times and phases of your life where he just identifies, he puts his finger on something and he has this profound effect of just burning it out, but at the same exact time, he, can, he walks with you the whole time. Does anybody remember on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus, you know, has paid this amazing price, You know, he's been resurrected. He's in heaven now. Pentecost is the day, the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus came to purchase. The Holy Spirit can now be in us. Most of you are a little bit ahead of me. Do you remember how when God came on Pentecost? On Pentecost Day, the Holy Spirit comes into the room and he appeared to everybody as tongues of what? Fire. Remember that? Why fire? Why? Because he's still Yahweh. He's still that fire. He's still holy. Jesus didn't change that. But now he purchased the right for that fire to live in us. And we, yes, we still have messes. Yes, we still have that same prayer. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Yes, yes, we're still praying that prayer. What Jesus accomplished is just shocking. It's just shocking. And I I don't think I understand it any better than you do. How he bridged that gulf, how God is still that consuming fire, and yet he walks with and I walk with him. But I know this, the more I see it, the more I walk with him, it has this cleansing effect, it has this purifying effect. It just empowers your entire life. I want to read a story that I think illustrates this, and then we'll wrap this up. An orphan boy was living with his grandmother when a neighbor man who saw that no children were playing with him took the boy under his wing and became a father to him. This happened back in the early 1800s, and the court system was a little different at that time. But one night, the house caught fire, the grandmother, trying to get upstairs to rescue the boy, perished in the flames, and the boy's cries for help were finally answered by the, na- by the neighbor man, you know, his friend, who, uh, with flames shooting out of the walls, climbed an iron drain pipe and came back down with the boy hanging tightly to his neck. Several weeks later, a public hearing was held to determine who would receive custody of the child. The boy's uncle was a farmer who had never really paid any attention to the boy, but now he is old enough to work, So the uncle was giving reasons why he felt the boy should live with him. As he, fin- or as he was talking, the, the boy's eyes just remained focused on the floor. But after the stranger, um, after the uncle was done, a, st- a stranger walked in front. Most of the town didn't know this man. And he slowly took his hands out of his pockets, revealing severe scars on his hands. As the crowd gasped, the boy cried out in recognition. This was the neighbor who had saved his life. His hands had been burned when he climbed that hot pipe. And with a leap, the boy threw his arms around the man's neck and held on for dear life. The uncle silently walked away, leaving the boy and his rescuer alone. Those marred hands had settled the issue. I think I think I almost don't have to explain that and how that parallels our story. But Jesus has scars on his hands, and I like the fact that this, this story includes a flame because Jesus walked into the flame of God. That's what he consumed for us. That's, what, that's when, when the Bible t- says that he, he was the propitiation, that, that big word means that he consumed God's wrath. He took all of it. And yeah, he was the one who got burned. The only not parallel in the story is Jesus died in the process and God resurrected him but he consumed that, that flame of God so that now we get to walk with God because of what Jesus Christ, because of Emmanuel, God with us. Would you just close your eyes and bow your head? and Lord Jesus, thank you for Emmanuel, God with us. Help us to appreciate what you've accomplished. Lord, we want to walk with God we want to walk with you. We want to walk with our God who is a consuming fire. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have made possible. Just really quickly, nobody's looking around, but if you're here and you have yet to fully surrender your life to God, you've yet to really appreciate what Jesus Christ has done and and have that moment of just turning away from your own selfishness and saying, Jesus, God, I want everything you have for me. Nobody's looking around, but if that's you and you're ready to surrender fully to God, would you just lift your hand right there where you're seated? Just lift your hand up. Say, God, that's me. Praise God. If your hand is lifted, let's all just pray this out loud. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for your amazing sacrifice. Thank you for taking my place. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I place my faith in you. Walk with me, and I want to walk with God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.